going to call order. Uh, work. <laughs> Trustee Avalada. Here. Trustee Peterson. Here. Trustee Hernandez. Here. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Shequin. Here. Trustee DeVries. Here. Trustee Jensen. Here. We have a quorum. Session. I think you, uh, is it public comment first or you do that? There, there is no public comment. Okay. So there are uh, two matters for, uh, for closed session. One, uh, pending litigation under uh, Government Code Section 5 for 957, excuse me, 5757.9, and evaluation under Government uh, Code Section 5 for 957, subsection B. Public comment. Yes, there you are. This is what we do. We take care of it. Uh, Reminder for public speakers that we have three minutes each, so please keep an eye on the time clock. Our first speaker is Martha. Martha? Okay, since we have no response from Martha, let's go to Derek. Can you hear me? No. Are we fired up, Dave? Good afternoon. Okay, yeah. okay, we're going to start with public comment. Just a reminder that each person has three minutes to speak, so please keep an eye on the time clock. Our first speaker is Martha. Hi. Good afternoon, Board of Trustees. Uh, my name is Martha Boehner. I'm a therapist at the Fairmont Intensive Outpatient Program um, for AHS, and I'm here with my colleague, Chelsea DeMarty. Um, we are here proudly standing with our union brothers and sisters in support of our contract fight. But in addition to that, for our specific program, we are coming back to the board six, less than six months after we were here before when our program was facing a cut, being completely closed for no real reason that we understood. We were being told that we were unprofitable, but nobody was looking deep into the financing to see if that was really true, whether it was circumstantial, what was going on. We were promised that AHS would work with us. We've had a couple of meetings that were in September. Since then, nothing. We heard a rumor two weeks ago that they were going to close the intensive outpatient program at Highland, which serves Oakland and North, and our program within a few months, our, the Highland program within a very short period of time. Highland is very vulnerable. They lost a couple of leading administrators. They were down some full-time therapists. We've been told that they were being right-sized by those positions basically not being refilled, hampering the program from it re-expanding and becoming profitable. We really want to stress the importance of our programs right now. Two days ago, Governor Newsom gave a state of the state where he talked about the intersection of homelessness, severe mental illness, drug use. Our programs serve that exact population, and we keep them out of the hospital. We keep them out of PES. We keep them out of jail, and we keep them housed. We have lots of data to support that. No one's asking that of us. No one's looking more deeply. The opportunity cost of closing our programs to the county is going to be extreme. Like one day in PES is $2,200. One day in the emergency room hospital because a severely mentally ill client couldn't monitor their own health and ended up becoming direly sick and getting picked up by paramedics is extremely expensive. The county cost, the copay that the county should be paying for our program, but they are not paying to AHS because we don't have a contract, 
and AHS is not claiming those. They're not going after those funds, but they're blaming us for being unprofitable. Is $57 per client per day. I mean, we have a long 25-year track record of success. And I'm like facing the tragic irony of HS running around saying, we need money, we need money. And they are like kind of taking this hatchet approach, not really doing the work, rolling up their sleeves, looking at the budgets, looking at the reality of our funding and what's going on with us. And um, they're just like throwing stuff out. That's the attitude. Uh, this is an old program. This isn't really a great program. And it's like, the, the image in my mind is like, we need money. We're going to like go through all our stuff and throw out the dusty old things. And the, the thing that they're throwing out, the painting in the closet they're throwing on the trash heap is a Rembrandt. But nobody's paying attention. This is exactly the kind of program that Governor Newsom is talking about. And like with very little, we even didn't get notice. We heard a rumor through some of our folks at Highland. We had a meeting with our direct administrators, and we said, we heard this rumor. They're like, we're so glad you said that. We're really into transparency. We're really blunt. And then we got no information. And um, basically, we started organizing. We called our union. They were there for us. We started calling people out in the community. And like yesterday, we got an email saying, oh, no decisions have been made yet. But <laughs> we know that if we weren't out there fighting for our patients, who are among the most vulnerable people in this county and have nowhere else to go, that they would be dumped. And that is really unacceptable for us. So we're really hoping that people will stop this kind of barreling down the road at a breakneck pace, destroying viable programs that are the poster child for what our governor is saying we need more of in this county. I mean, I drive home past 10 cities every day, and I say, I wish those people were in our program. We have the space if they would staff up and allow us to expand our program. And there's funding for it. So thank you. Thank you. you. from the governor's speech. I have Derek next. Thank you. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'd like to thank this board first for giving us the opportunity to speak to you. Um, I'm here on behalf of every working employee that's here inside of this facility. Uh, from John George to Fairmont to San Leandro Hospital. Um, we're looking at a big change that's going on up in here right now and it's, and it's immediately affecting patient care. Um, as you can look at these pictures that you see here on the back of the wall, the transition that is going on right now in the EVS department is becoming to be a very, very uh, determining challenge for the workers. Um, the workload that is being put on the workers is not going to allow the workers to be able to do adequate cleaning inside of the hospital. It's not going to be able to protect the patient care inside of the hospital and it's not protecting our workers that come up in here. It's going to affect our community. It's going to put each and every one of us in a situation where we're not understanding exactly the way that we need to be trained to deal with the coronaviruses. A lot of uh, upload diseases that's on the front line that we don't have the correct chemicals that actually are needed to actually do the work and perform our duties to the full capacity. Um, we have a management team that's inside of our departments right now that wants to make changes that are not even having discussions with actually the workers and what can make them successful. We're actually being put in positions that are actually helping 
us to fail. And we're here to actually take care of patient care and to make sure that each and every individual here is being safe. So as you walk outside right now, you can see that these hallways are not being cleaned because the department directors, the department managers are deciding that you only need one maintenance porter inside of the hospital at a time to actually clean the floors, which we understand is ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense. And it's keeping the hospital not clean. We're asking that we begin that we receive the staffing that we actually need to clean this hospital to the degree that it needs to be cleaned for it can make sure that patients do not get staff infections when they come up into the rooms, that our nurses will be protected when they're doing the work that they're doing, our respiratory therapists, every individual that works inside of this hospital. You guys actually, when you guys walk up in here, we want you guys to actually feel safe and protected up in here also. Um, we have EVS workers that have been demoted down from maintenance porters to housekeepers. Um, we have a department that is not converting when they're forcing people to be laid off and take uh, severance pays and, and early retirements, and we're not fulfilling those obligations of converting our employees to part-time and full-time workers, which they can be able to provide health care for their own families. Um, it's been a very big distraction, and it's putting extreme stress on each and every worker inside of this facility to know that we don't feel supported by the administration that is inside of this facility that we believe is not taking patient care first. We're asking this board to please take a look into the effects that is going on all over our facilities that are keeping us in challenges every day with us not having the training, not having the resources we need to provide adequate cleaning up in here. So like I said, on behalf of each and every worker inside of this hospital, we need the right to be able to have conversations with each and every one of the individuals that you guys bring in here that so-called wanting to be in leadership roles that are not from this community but don't want to hear what is important as far as doing patient care rights. Workers are not being protected. Workers' contracts are, are, are being overlooked. Seniority is being overlooked up in here. So. It's becoming a major impact on each and every worker when they come up in here knowing that they're going to be working at a, a, an extreme disadvantage on a daily basis. So we're looking for this leadership to understand that they need to start having conversations with the management teams that they have up in here because they're going in a direction that does not support patient care. Um, it seems like every two, three years or, or so, we get an administration that's up in here that doesn't take patient care correctly, that doesn't believe that patient care is what we're all here and the purpose that we're here. So please take the opportunity to talk to workers that walk around up in this hospital that are dealing with unsafe workloads on a daily basis and figure out a way how we can work collectively together to figure out what's the most important reason why we come to work every day, and it's to take care of our patients is to make sure that workers have the stability to be able to do the jobs that they're here for to do every day. And workers need health care coverage. Most definitely we need health care coverage, we need retirements because we have families also. We need to get gas in our cars so we can actually make it to work. So these are the challenges that we're dealing with every day and we're to the point now where we're fed up. We're fighting. We're standing up for our rights as people that live in this community, people that provide the services to this community, and we're looking for you guys as leaders up in here to understand that because we're all here for that same purpose, and that's patient care. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. I have Andrea Thomas next. Andrea Thomas or Andrea Thomas?
Hi, my name is Andrea Thomas. I'm here on behalf of my private client, Paul Lorraine Stokes. Monday, she was admitted to ER at San Leandro Hospital at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. They discharged her at 1 o'clock on Tuesday, saying that her gallbladder was just enlarged because she didn't eat and gave her some Maalox and sent her home. By Tuesday at 2 o'clock, she was admitted into Eden. Now they're talking about doing surgery. Due to the fact that they were short-staffed at San Leandro, the doctor was overwhelmed. They were really busy in the ER. And my client is highly upset because he says, what happens if it was something really emergency and she would have died and you sent her home with Maalox and gave her a sandwich? If Alameda County is only into how much money you're going to make at the end of the day and not patient care, why are we around? That is a good question. Why are we here? If you're not going to sit and do what you want to do for your patient care, this is our community that we're serving. And as a caregiver, I am upset that I, that I have to justify what we all do, mainly since I work for you. At the same time, I understand where my client's coming from. The fact that now she's in the ER, they talk about doing surgery, he could not make it today because he's talking to the surgeon as we speak. So instead of looking at how much money we're going to make or cutting things, how about we make sure that our ERs are staffed properly, make sure that we are staffed properly. Because one doctor on the unit, mainly an ER, and they were short RNs, and the whole ER was loaded to where it was outside, and you're discharging patients. You need to think about not just how much money we make, but also how many lawsuits we're going to get if she would have died or someone would have died. Let's, let's put our cards on the table and let's think straight, and not just straight, just think smart. Money's not always the bottom line. We're here for patient care, and patient care should be number one. Let's look at our community and serve them properly. Let's not cut corners to do that. Thank you. Thank you. Adrian Jackson. Hello, my name is Adrian Jackson. I'm a respiratory therapist here at Highland. Um, I've been here for eight years, and you know I love what I do. Um, lately, we've been facing challenges of uh, of whether we can we have to triage patients, right? We have to say, okay, this patient's not breathing as bad as that patient, so let me just leave this patient and go to the worst patient. And we do that. This is a hospital. I understand that. But I'm not proud of the work I do when I do those kinds of things. I, I often put my parents in that situation. My parents are of a higher age. And when they come in the hospital, I don't want somebody to say to them, hey, you know what? You're not as bad as this guy. I'm going to go uh, take care of this guy, whatever, with you. And um, from, a, from a person with a heart, it's just really, really hard to do. And um, I, I foresee this uh, hospital making a bad situation worse. We're often told by management to point at our fellow employees and tell them not to call in so much. Like they're not people, like they don't get sick. Um, and that's really the solution that management has for us. Or I'm also told by management, uh, don't make things too crazy, don't, don't raise your voice, don't, don't make fuss because what they're gonna do is bring somebody in here to cut jobs. And I'm like, well, uh, we really don't have enough people to help these people breathe properly, and you're talking about cutting jobs in my department? This makes absolutely no sense. Um, 
So I'm here to ask you guys to help us in this battle that, 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 that we face in making uh, AHS a better place to, uh, to receive health care. Thank you. Thank you. John Pearson. take this out of the stand so I don't have to hunch over. John Pearson, you're a nurse here at Highland and chapter president for Local 10 to 1. I want to give you a little bit of the context for some of the photos that you see here. Um, I look back through my work emails and since January of 2017, AHS has been declaring extremely frequently an internal disaster. Uh, in the past month alone, just looking at my emails and also being here on shift, a third of the days in the past 30 days have AHS has declared an internal disaster, a surge red, it gets called, because the hospital's too overcrowded. Often it starts here at Highland and it ripples out to our other facilities. And the actual outcome of that surge red is not that lots of extra staff are called in or extra beds are opened up on an emergency basis somewhere. It's that the standards for our patients are dramatically lowered from a place that's already way too low to a point that is very literally subhuman. So the last assignment that I worked was in a hallway in the ER. I walked by it just now, coming here. The signs demarcating the unlicensed bed are still paper and pen on the wall. There's no sinks, there's no patient care equipment, heavy equipment rolls by frequently, uh, x-ray machines that could crush someone's foot. There's no privacy, doctors are doing exams in view of everybody passing by. It's subhuman. What you see here, these photos, these were all taken in the last month at AHS facilities. We see this kind of stuff at work all the time. The rooms we've been bargaining in even, holes in the walls, a door with a rusty hole and rust all over the floor, magic marker signs that say don't use the door. So these are the kind of conditions we're working in and that our patients are healing in. We're having an extremely hard time taking the words of our leadership seriously when the words are always Sure, fine, we hear you, we'll fix it, we'll work on this, we want to work together, and we don't see substance. In fact, we see all these problems getting worse for years. The surges are getting so bad that I worked a Saturday and then I came back on a Monday and the same patients were in the same places in several beds in the ER. Some of them in the hallway, for literally for days. No daylight, no window, no shower, no plan for regular meal service like on the inpatient floors. It's completely unacceptable. Uh, we have a hard time taking initiatives to fix things seriously as well. Del Vecchio's well-publicized diversity program, we have a hard time taking that seriously when in the last fiscal year, 90% of the terminations you did were of people of color. So that diversity program, where the only workers that are on it are picked by management, is not something that our members are able to take very seriously. I want to tell you a little bit about how bargaining is going. So we talked to Tony a little bit before we started bargaining, and we heard that you want to work together with us to win more funding for AHS. We agree AHS is underfunded, and we want to win that fight for more funding for our patients. If, if you'll allow me, please, another 30 seconds to tell you a little bit how bargaining is going. So, However, it's the same thing, right? So the words and the actions don't match. What we're actually met with at the bargaining table is a promise that every page of the current contract is going to get passed across to us, and we're going to be nickeled and dimed about where semicolons go. We have a hard time trusting HS when the current contract that we're still in still isn't even signed. We think that it's very reasonable that we and your bargaining 
bargaining team can come up with a list of three, five, seven high priority issues that we can hash out at the bargaining table. We think that's possible. We don't want to drag this out for 18 months. We don't want to argue about where sentences go. We don't want to have every page of our current contract passed across the table to us. It's insulting. We've offered to sit together about issues that are common across our three bargaining units, and we're being told that will never happen. That would be an efficiency, and we are asking that you go back to your fo the folks on your bargaining team and ask them why, in the middle of your budget crisis, are we wasting time duplicating work, triplicating work, three times over at three different tables when we could have one conversation? So we're here today asking you to take our work seriously, we're asking you to take bargaining seriously, and we're asking you to take basic the human dignity of our patients seriously and bring the standards of care up to just a basic level of basic human needs. I want to give you one really quick example here. This picture of dirty socks, that's not my laundry basket. That's, that's the bin in the ER last week of socks that we have on hand to give to homeless patients when they're discharged. There doesn't appear to be any plan at AHS to meet the new state standards for providing weather-appropriate clothing to homeless patients. It's based on donations from employees. There's no program to collect those or even promote them. And so we usually don't have any jackets or warm-weather clothing or shoes. Walking here just now, I watched two people get discharged and walk out in socks. It's not okay. It's not appropriate. We're asking you to fix it. Sue Hamasich. Hope I got that right. I gotta lower it. Hey. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Sue Hamrich. I am one of the um, only two certified hand therapists we have ever had at Alameda Health System. Um, and I've been with the Alameda Health System for six years. I'm, I'm, I'm here today because I want to talk to you about the public health crisis that is occurring with these pictures that you see. This is what our, this is what our community is exposed to. This is, look, let's forget the purple a second, okay? I live in Alameda a County. I live in San Leandro. This is what my community has to deal with. Things like hepatitis C lives on in dried blood, okay? It's not like a lot of other blood-borne diseases. Gray, ER, K building, fourth floor, one. Perfect timing. Gray, ER, Perfect example. How many code grays have we had since staffing cuts? I'm here at, at Alameda, at, at, at Highland Hospital in the ortho clinic on uh, uh, for on Tuesday afternoons, and I hear it at least four times. Many of my patients are gunshot victims who are suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome. They can't get out of the house to come to their appointments, much less try, even attempt to live their own lives. If they don't come to therapy, they end up homeless, they lose their jobs, uh, and it, you got to have your hands to work. That, that, that's all they're simply asking for. And the wait times that they're having to undergo at the, uh, in the OR and in the hand clinic are unacceptable. Uh, there's no supplies for us at the hand clinic. The hand surgeon and I spent $500 
on spraying supplies for, to treat our people, my community, the people who live around y'all. And I thank y'all for doing your job because we couldn't run it without you. But that's what they're facing. Um, the other day I saw an 88-year-old woman with a fractured ankle uh, just stuffed into that ortho clinic waiting for a room. She was there when I got there at 1 o'clock. At 6 o'clock when I left, she was still there. She hadn't had anything to eat. Nobody had, only one person had checked on her, and that was to see if she could have something to eat, but nobody brought her anything. Um, these are my people. This is us. This is who we are. We can't let these community members down. Thank you very much. Thank you. That concludes public comment. Then move us to the consent agenda. Approval of the minutes, approval of policies and procedures, approval of medical staff policies and procedures. Motion to approve. Second. All those in favor? Aye. Any opposed or abstain? Motion carries. And now item B, discussion of fiscal year 20 budget status and fiscal year 21 budget process. Lewis and Kim. Luis will probably likely help me out as well. Um, so what we did is we conducted a survey. The results are there, kind of hard to see. Um, but we wanted to make sure that we got feedback from, uh, from the constituents so that we could improve our process. Uh, we, we got a lot of information back. Um, people were concerned about the length of the process, um, the short time frame to turn around um, information or to agree to certain types of information, including targets. And they really felt like there wasn't enough communication throughout the whole process. I think you can probably hear me now. So we, we listed three bullets down there on the bottom to kind of summarize some of the recommendations that we built into the FY21 budget process. Um, we are conducting meetings with the operational leaders to make sure that they understand how we built the productivity targets and benchmarks. Um, we're gathering input from them to evaluate volume projections, which do result in staffing. Um, we're scheduling 
uh, more on-site meetings at the different facilities to explain the process, and we're providing much more elbow support. Um, we're doing a budget training where folks uh, are to come, and it's mandatory, and our hope is that they can complete their budget right there with our staff so that they don't have to fret about it, worry about it later. You know, sh there may be things that need to be followed up upon, but the majority of it should be right there done with support. All right, so the next slide is our uh, goals and principles. Uh, this year, our strategic or long-term vision without our long-range plan or strategic plan updated is really to focus on stabilization. I mean, uh, Sapphire was a huge implementation. It impacts every department in our entire organization. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to start with the calendar year 2019 as a baseline budget. We've made some adjustments to it for volume based on uh, things that might have happened last year versus next year, but very minor tweaks here or there. The staffing will get calculated based upon the agreed upon labor standards and we'll come up with a baseline number. Um, it will have things like CPI in it, those sorts of things, but it won't have any big strategic changes. It's really about stabilization. In regard to sustainability, um, we recognize that we need to have adequate revenue to cover our expenses, but our goal is not to try to come up with uh, uh, EBITDA or cash flow to pay back for prior year recoupments. There is just no way that we could squeeze out that kind of money out of operations. Um, we want to be inclusive and also accountable. Uh, we are including staff, physicians. This board will be very much involved. Finance committee will be uh, involved. And we're working with how we can also involve folks with the county. It does need to be balanced because we do have a community. We recognize that we need to provide care to them and we want to do it in the best way possible, try to provide that care in the right setting. Um, no budget would be complete. I, no management team could sit here without including continuous improvement. So there will be items that we will layer on the baseline that will include revenue cycle, performance improvement, and some other um, improvement that we think that is appropriate for the organization. Um, we will model other types of things, potential strategic things to help us close any gap that we have. And those will get layered on at the very end as well. And then we can, by building them as performance on top of the budget, we'll actually have the ability to come back here and report to you how we're doing on those strategies next year. The next slide is a graphic of the process. I'm not going to read all of this to you. Um, the December and January time frame is where we actually develop the inputs. Uh, this is the volume statistics, the labor standards, what the CPI is going to be, those sorts of things. In February, March, where we are now, we're developing the baseline budget. Again, this is off of 2019. Um, this will tell us how much of a gap that we have and what, and what we need to, to come up with to close it. 
Um, I don't know if I mentioned in the last slide, but we're hoping that we will uh, come in at the same level that we are for the 2020 budget. Uh, for April and May, that's when all of the review takes place. It's when we start layering on other items that we might want to include, including some things like the revenue cycle improvement target. And then in June and July, we will be doing lots of uh, presentation and, and hopefully be able to complete on time this year uh, the budget and not go into September like we did this last year. The next couple of slides are in your deck. I don't know that I would need to go through all of these things. It, the first two lay out lots of different steps that are needed to complete a budget. Uh, there's two slides of those. Um, final presentation there at June 25th, 2020. And this one is just a graphic of which sort of shows how certain things overlap but it's really uh, the same as the last two slides, just formatted a little different, a little more summarized. Um, that's my presentation. I want to give Luis a chance to comment, too, if I missed anything. Hmm? Any questions for me? Yeah. Uh, sorry. Uh, Cold Gray, ER, station fourth floor, pay building. Uh, I, I really appreciate that we're not trying to balance the budget, uh, that we're not including past year, um, what do you call them? Recruitments. Uh, recruitments, thank you, yeah. <laughs> um, so we're, we're, not, we're not paying down our credit card. Um, and so with that in mind, do you expect this to be a less painful process? I, I mean, essentially, we're going to be looking at what we're bringing in and what we're putting out to run the operation, not what we have to pay back from past years, right? I think it would be an unrealistic expectation to think that we could squeeze $100 million or even $70 million for the old waivers in one budget year. It does not make, make sense, and I think it will just set us uh, on, a, on a course of uh, uh, maybe making decisions that are not fully vetted. Persis requires. I don't know if this, is this working? Let's get closer. To get closer. This is an all clear message for the code grade ER station one four four K building. This is an all so clear message. It does require that we uh, ER have a conversation with the county about the net negative balance. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. uh, as you may remember, recall the. Uh, recruitment, the large recruitment that we thought was going to hit in fiscal year uh, 2020 is not likely to hit this year, but will hit more likely next year, uh, 2021. And uh, therefore, we could surpass our uh, limit of $160 million on our net negative balance. Um, so we need to engage in a conversation with the county about uh, our limit there. And if I, I guess what I would just highlight from, from Kim's report is truly this, this last, well, this current year uh, that we're in, the budget planning process, uh, there was a lot of activity. There was many things that happened. And as a result of that process, we actually wanted to make sure that we regrouped and reached out to all of our operational and clinical leaders to identify what were the opportunities? What can we do differently as we move forward as we're planning through our budgeting cycles? And so we went through that very exercise and received a lot of great feedback. And the focus this year has been really engaging 
all operational leaders, all clinical leaders, making sure that they have a thorough understanding of their operation, of the, of the targets, of the benchmarks, how those come together, what's informing all the data, the volume predictions, and how they can affect the, directly those volume predictions, and things of that nature that drive the overall composition of the budget. So I just I want to highlight that, you know, certainly we, we, we continue to evolve and learn as an organization to get better, to make this process more streamlined, to ensure that it's more comprehensive, and, you know, truly being completely engaging to, to ensure that we have the best result possible. Can I ask another question on that? Uh, <clears throat> will you share uh, during your updates to the board uh, kind of what you're finding down at the service level as far as where things are going great, you know, volumes are up, uh, and where things need improvement? Because I think it helps us, like, to know kind of early on what, what you're thinking about where different departments are, different programs. I, I look at the, the one that was just discussed at the beginning of, uh, of public comment. You know, that, that kind of came to us as a bit of a surprise. Um, and so if there's things like that that you're finding in the system that you intend to make recommendations on, the sooner we know about it, the, the, I just think the better verse will be at, at, at you know, helping you and giving input to that decision. And yeah. I have a uh, so how, how is some of this um, process going along? Like uh, I'm looking at the timelines for, uh, oops. <laughs> the, the inclusion process of like presenting the, you know, the baseline budget that which is like coming up in March. So as you're involving the operational leaders and things like just the mechanism of how that happens are you going to the different sites or to the different SBUs and speaking with them and how is that trickling down so that there's no cognitive dissonance between you know um, from the uh, from the staff level at, from the manager level down to so that you are in you are interfacing with the leadership of each yeah. of those but then that there's there's some level I, I know everything can't be said to everybody but like some level of um, communication and how is that happening in the that's a great question so uh, Luis did just send out uh, a slide deck to all of the leaders in our organization as a start and I think I mentioned that we are going to go on site there's mandatory meetings with every manager and my staff will be there we will do a presentation to start to explain the process and will the expectation is that they'll be able to complete their budget right then and there there may be follow-up items. It's going to be several hours, and it's it's a training as well as elbow support so that folks can get through it. Because otherwise, I mean, a budget can be really daunting to people, but sometimes if you have somebody who understands the math behind it and can sit there and say, well, this is how this works. This is, you know, where you were last year, and this is where you'll be this year, and they could actually understand that it's not a huge gap and they can buy into it, mm -hmm. then the whole process goes a lot smoother. And that's what we're really trying to do. Um, there's probably more things that aren't on here that we could do. Like I, um, I know uh, Devecki is doing his um, his meetings with staff. I don't know the if we... The town halls? The town uh, halls. And the um, chat and choose, the informal meetings uh, that I do. Uh, yeah. It's it's no no top or no no planned agenda. What's on your mind? Kind of a uh, session with random people across. Yeah, that exactly. 
just say uh, there are a couple other uh, mechanisms in place where we talk about these things, particularly during the budget time, budget comes up, or, but our, oftentimes even outside of the budget time, budget comes up as well. So I think it's probably good to think about, you know, other, other ways as well. We are definitely coming here. We're working to try to go and meet, you know, with the Board of Supervisors. Uh, but I think the more that we communicate and the more engagement we get, the better. Yeah, so to, to, further, to further drill down, so I, yeah, I, I would say, and, and again, toward the timeline as you're referencing uh, Trustee Banerjee, it's, it's one of those things where over the last two months, uh, January and February, we've been uh, meeting with uh, all of our leaders, uh, like I said, clinical and operational leaders, uh, where they were at, at that point understanding and, and evaluating all of the volume projections based on the historical performance of the organization as we were seeing. They also uh, were receiving training. We have specific training set up for them to understand how to look at their uh, operational database and the action life for benchmarking data as, as it relates to, to that. So we had specific training with all of the operational leaders and physician leaders to understand those metrics and how they were managing that. So that's been happening over the last couple of months. Um, and that's what's informing this baseline that will then be ultimately rolled out to these same leaders that have been already involved in defining not only uh, an understanding and an agreement on a projected target, but then now operationalizing that the month of March, as you see on the timeline from March 9th on through the month, uh, month of March, to really then solidify their budget for their specific departments. And so this has been, you know, kind of steps leading to this point where we're at uh, in March to start really building this budget, understanding from the leaders. And so over the last couple of months, they've been looking at, you know, not only those key drivers that inform the budget, but then understanding their operation itself <coughs> and how that then's going to have a material impact from a you know, non-labor perspective primarily to see how they're going to look at managing their contracts, managing their expenses, managing those types of aspects. So it's, it's been very uh, engaging and inclusive uh, through the last couple of months. It's been going on for the last, like I said, 60 days. I, I, I'd like to ask, and I appreciate that, that there's no payback of prior year um, supplementals that will be included in this budget and that there's a baseline of 2019. What, I'm, what my question is is, as you're going out, if that's the baseline, you are the budget. Um, there's already discussion among uh, leadership about where the targets are going to be, as you alluded to, Lewis. So that's not. It, it may be based on 2019, but there are going to be. There, you are going to roll it out with suggested reductions. Well, with with we we are rolling it out based on on informed value projections and productivity or labor targets that all the leaders were involved as a result of all the trainings and the discussions. So looking at, um, for example, just focusing on volume, which is one of your key drivers. We wanted to make sure that we looked at our baseline, which was 2019, and understanding, well, in some areas, we thought we were going to see greater volume, and we didn't. So we need to revisit that projection and say, hey, for, for the next year, do we think we're going to get to that point, or do we need to recalculate that? And so we met with those operational leaders and physician leaders, and I actually have a sign-off from each of these clinical chairs, the physician chairs, saying, yeah, no, I completely agree with this. I support this volume, and this is what we're committing to. Okay. Once you have the volume, then you're looking right. at establishing a, a labor target, which we trained all of our staff and wanted them to understand what goes into this. And so once they got the understanding of all that, in some cases we actually learned that, oh, well, wait a minute, we, we, we actually include what in that? 
and so, well, that doesn't belong in there, and so we made some cleanups. But once they all came to an agreement, they said, okay, now we know what this projected unit of service is, this target. So you take your unit of service and your volume, and it calculates how much staffing you need to, to accommodate or to achieve that volume target. Exactly, and, so and I'm, I, that's, that's exactly, what we've done. and that's, that's great. And, and from, my, from the presentation, and what I want to really just, just focus on and be clear on, and what I appreciate is that there's not going to be for example, if we were deciding, okay, well, we got to do some payback here, and um, for, uh, in the public agency I work with, um, oh, wait, we thought we were going to have this tax revenue, but now we don't have it, so everybody's going to have to cut back um, 5% or 10% in our program. So we're not going there or starting there. We're starting with the estimated revenues based on our prior, our prior activity or our prior year budget, and without addressing or including some either unknown or known reductions that are going to happen. We, we, we're not dealing with unknown at this point, and we're not dealing with recruitments. But what we want to do is get at the same level of margin as we had for the current FY20. So if you think about it, what does that mean? It means we would be the same if we didn't have CPI or wage increases. So those are two things we need to cover. So in that case, we might need to have staff maybe reduce two or three percent, but not 10 or 15 or something like that. So the purpose of the baseline budget is to see what that gap is, and once we know what that gap is, then we have to come up with a way to fix it. So one way might be, okay, everybody needs to cut two percent, right? Maybe they offset some of the CPI. Maybe the leader of the department knows that the contract's not getting renewed till next year, so maybe he doesn't need that, or she doesn't need to, have that additional 2% because we still have a year on the existing contract, right? Because at a budgeting level, we're more global. The department level, they know their business and they can make those kinds of assessments. So does that answer? Yeah, that answers my question. Yeah. Thanks. So, so to, to operationalize the budget once it's approved, uh, you know, assuming we get it, we have an imbalance, uh, we're still going to have to have the cooperation of our partners, right? So like increasing the net negative balance is part of the underlying assumptions for the budget. Yeah, those recoupments, we will do a cash flow and we will um, estimate what we think that shortfall is and we will definitely have to engage with the county. We just don't have that. I don't know how that will work at this point. So we're right. still working through that. Right, and last year we had some confusion from stakeholders about the difference between the budget and our cash flow right. challenge, uh, which largely relates to recruitments from waiver dollars. Um, I want to make one other point to Tracy's question. Uh, in the Finance Committee, we've, been, uh, we've asked staff uh, to report to us uh, every meeting how we're doing uh, towards the patient revenue enhancement strategies. Remember, we had a number of those included, in, in assumed, I should say, in the budget. And so staff's done a really good job. It's in the COO report, um, and I would uh, drive you there. I would assume, I'll make this a question, I think it's safe to assume that um, this is a factor in the conversations you're having internally about potential savings. Uh, in other words, if an area is not performing um, as expected, then you will have to analyze what you're going to do in that area. Is that... That's correct. It, the, yeah, that is certainly informing the recalibration of those particular initiatives and issues. So that's another item to track. Any 
other questions? Okay, great. Then I'll move us to our next item, which is strategic planning. And Ishwar is going to be joining me. So I'll just start us off. I have a number of questions for us as Board of Trustees as the organization begins to embark upon a strategic planning process and we're going to get to hear from Ishwari sort of how we're doing on our current strategic plan, where we stand now. Um, and I will put this slide back up at the end so that we can actually get into details. But I just wanted to start us off here so that we can be thinking as a board, um, how can we be as effective as possible in supporting um, the, the strategic plan of the organization, um, keeping in mind sort of the values framework that's going to be presented. Uh, and that we also be thinking about who we need to be engaging with and at what point along the process, uh, who should be involved in developing sort of the pre-planning pre steps, and then also what additional information we as a board of trustees will need in order to be the most effective and the most supportive of um, achieving our strategic plan goals. And so with that, um, I'll have Ashwari present. Thank you so much. Good afternoon, trustees. I hope you can hear me. <clears throat> um, um, this, this is hopefully a fairly simple presentation because I'm trying to um, um, present something that you all are probably very familiar with. It's two parts. One is, why are we doing this? Why should we be doing this now? And the second part is, how do we go about doing it? And, and then there's a series of questions that uh, Trustee Abuelada will... Rapid response. Please call ICU. Um, Trustee Abuelada will circle back to these questions. Um, we would love your feedback as we consider some of the things that we have to start embarking on now if we were to consider launching the strategic plan, um, which is um, moving on to our next slide in um, its fourth year. So AHS is in its fourth year of executing its current strategic plan, which was uh, set up in FY17. Uh, many of you, um, uh, as I look around, were very instrumental in helping us uh, uh, approve this plan. Um, that planning process uh, predates me a little bit, um, and I believe that it was a 14-month process. It started sometime in the August timeframe, mm -hmm. um, and November, I believe, 2016 was when the plan was approved by you all. Now, uh, if you recall, uh, that strategic plan had outlined a three to five year um, set of st strategies and objectives. And uh, towards the fourth and fifth year, it was a little bit more nebulous, understanding that a strategic plan is nowadays never something that's rigid, it's, it's, it needs to be flexible, and we were trying to be considerate of things that could change in the environment that might need us to be nimble and uh, flex accordingly, uh, while at the same time moving, marching forward towards our aspirations. So at the outset, we had set up our strategic objectives, if, if you recall, as three different sort of buckets. The first year, the first year or so or more, were foundational objectives. And then we had transitional objectives that were sort of a blend between the foundation and, um, as the word says, transitional. And finally, the transformational objectives uh, that are um, sort of, again, as the word is pretty self-descriptive, I'm not going to describe it. 
Now, as we look through the next slide, you'll see that most of the foundational and transitional objectives have been realized. So again, um, this is again um, you know, the hard work that the organization has been embarking on for the last four years. Now, as HS contemplates some of the transformational strategies for the future, um, I think now it's time that we again look back and cast what the current realities are because certainly the environment has changed quite a lot since the last four years and will continue to change. And some of the things we see looming, for example, we know that Prime, the Medi-Cal 1115 waiver, that was one of the backbones of the current strategic plan is expiring or it's, it's coming to its end at the end of this calendar year. Um, and of course, uh, Cal-AIM is something, I know there's a new name for it, and I never get that right, so I'm still going to call it Cal-AIM. And there's some uncertainty with you know, what, what that will require us to do, so there's some clarity that will happen over the course of the next few months before the end of this year. Now, what did we accomplish? Uh, if you recall, the strategic uh, plan that was set forth really uh, talked about AHS became, becoming a population health manager. And we said we were going to do four different broad strategies. One was establish foundational competencies, uh, both in the infrastructure as well as in the way we deliver care. Uh, we were going to develop some financing contracts that advance population health. Uh, we wanted to strengthen partnerships with both area healthcare and non-healthcare providers uh, to, for, for us to better operate as a system. And uh, finally, we did want to, we also said we want to coordinate as a system, integrating services across our continuum of care. So how did we, how did we do? I actually, um, you know, Trustee Obolada asked me to put everything in one slide, and I know I could <laughs> compressed it. <laughs> um, and so I've listed some of the big things. And uh, again, uh, please excuse me here. There's many more here which are not represented. But these are just some highlights and um, kind of things that the organization has accomplished. The SPU structure is defined. Population health SPU, which didn't exist four years ago, has developed and it's well on its way. The waiver program itself, which is a significant um, effort for this organization that was launched, we've delivered targets on all the fiscal years. Significant effort with so many metrics that QPSC and all of you are familiar with. The ambulatory operations, uh, no small feat, redesigned. Uh, again, to support PCMH, to support capitation. Capitation itself was rolled out there. Uh, workforce development, um, developed HR Leadership Academy, built from the ground up, uh, supported by this organization, launched um, uh, at least 200 and some or more managers have gone through this uh, process. Um, then what else have we done? Rehab project completed, moved rehab to San Leandro, um, integrated San Leandro under the core license. Um, AHS early on in the strategic planning process with the county to find uh, solutions for our uh, John George PES, uh, launched Eddy, um, uh, and I really don't need to read, uh, read the entire list, but you can see a whole lot of things. It's addressed and reduced pay parity across the system, establishing transfer center, and some things that are still in the works, but we'll get, uh, we know will get done before the end of this fiscal year, which is the AHP uh, new co-leadership. Foundation structure. HP uh, hadn't quite um, been established at that point. That so is absolutely it's, true. It's created and has grown. Yes. Yeah. As an SPU, yeah. HP was absolutely right. When I came, HP right. didn't exist. It existed on paper. Oh, right. It existed on paper, yeah. 
and last. Yeah, there was still perusing, and that was. <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, and, and not to sound trivial, but last but not the least, I've bolded this the huge, significant effort of this organization. So, uh, Sapphire. <laughs> and I know, again, like I said, apologies, there's several things here that are not um, uh, capturing all the efforts for four years, but I'm trying to. Reflect we have one page. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> Cough accreditation, level one trauma status, a couple oh, yeah. other things happening. Thank you, Maria Yes. Yeah. Just a few. So, um, a big uh, collective uh, sigh here and a pat on our backs, and then moving forward. So, now here we are, um, and it's incumbent upon us to start thinking through what, what, what do we do? What do we aspire to be, and how do we go about doing that? Uh, for the next three to five years. And now is the time to start thinking about it. Now, um, I was just trying to lay out something here which just sets us all in the same uh, sort of framework for consideration. There are several different approaches to developing a strategic plan. I know organizations where two people sit in a room, bang something out, that's a strategic plan for the organization, it's rolled out. And there are others that take a more consensus-driven approach, like ourselves. We did have a large group that informed the strategic plan. We're hoping we can have a similar effort roll out for this process, but again, I'll lead it to you all trustees <coughs> to help and guide us. So as we consider developing a long-range strategic plan, it starts with laying the groundwork, and I've highlighted that in yellow because that's where we are today. Uh, and in the next slide, you'll see a set of timelines that'll kind of um, 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 explain why we need, why we are having this discussion today, uh, when the strategic plan really won't roll out until the start of the next fiscal year, not this coming one, but the one after that, which is in uh, calendar year um, 2021. Um, so, um, you know, once we lay the groundwork, then the formal process kicks off. And typically a strategic plan, again, this is uh, no news to you all, it starts off with a review of the overarching uh, vision, the mission of the organization, the desired culture, and what are the values. And once that's done, then there's an internal assessment, an external assessment that looks to see where has the organization been over the last four years, what are our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and challenges, and we do this both internally uh, and also look facing externally to do that. And once that's done, then of course the uh, hard work of rolling up our sleeves and, and uh, throwing out strategies that we think would be our path forward. These are things we should be addressing. These are opportunities we should be addressing. Um, and then developing the goals and objectives and de determining what the strategy itself, overarching strategy is. Um, and uh, that would be the culmination of developing a strategic plan. Once that plan is adopted, then of course it's the communication to both internal and external stakeholders. And then translating that strategic plan into the operational sequence, uh, which gets then fed into the budget, and then we can you know, make sure there are resources to support the strategies that we've outlined in the long range um, of three to five year plan. So this is basically a broad framework, and you know, there are variations of how strategic planning is, is conducted, but this probably covers the broad range of how, how an approach would be. So if, oh, can I just ask or suggest on the last slide? I think um, we should be really clear in both gathering background assessment and um, external and internal assessment to identify, especially external assessment, that we should be working with key informants and I would, that would be the county, that would be our county partners. So just to um, specify that and be focused on that part of it. Thank you so much Trustee Jensen, it's very good feedback, thank you. So as we 
consider now the timeline. If we, you know, as we look, look at where we are, we are in that yellow box now starting February, and we're still laying the groundwork. And feedback like the one Trustee Jensen just gave us is exactly the kind of feedback we need directionally from you to say you need to do it this way, that way. We, need to, we will certainly build that in. We're still laying the groundwork. This is the pre-planning stage. Um, we're proposing a slightly different approach from the earlier slide now because we're saying before we kick the process off, and if we look at the end goal of this, July of 2021, I'm building this backwards, we need our um, financial budget, like you just saw the earlier um, uh, discussion, that sort of almost um, in the works sometime March of next calendar year, which means this strategic plan for the next three to five years has to be approved by the trustees sometime in that before that timeline, which means the process for planning it has to uh, precede that. So um, that's the reason it works backwards that way and we're deliberate to make sure we have built in enough time to use a pretty robust approach with key informants and other uh, sources to help us think through what, how, what we should be doing for the next three to five years. So again, starting at the top, we are laying the groundwork and what we're proposing is that the confirmation of the vision, purpose, and values actually sets the framework against which the strategic plan strategies ought to be tested. I know that um, Del Vecchio has presented to you all the work that we are embarking on shortly, which is um, really looking at the culture of this organization, uh, the purpose, and we're involving a ground-up effort that's not only internal but also external, including our key stakeholders, including the county, hopefully. And really asking, what are the values under which you want us to lead and to guide and to make decisions. Now, once that values framework, which is a foundational statement that the organization comes up with, we think that's important and that sets the stage for the next part, which is the actual strategic plan development, because anything we test against, um, we develop, will be tested against that values framework. And then the strategic plan is now looking at something that's built with the organization's DNA and what the organization aspires and wants us to do. So that's the general outline here. Um, we would uh, propose that we want to kick this process off in October, and again, we're being deliberative because that's the start of the fiscal year, and we felt that's when the budget and the organization is, um, is sort of in its cadence, and that's the time we would come to you. Actually, we would come to you sometime at the July retreat uh, with the next step of laying the groundwork. Um, and I'll get into a, um, a little bit more detail on that. And then, of course, the actual process is very condensed. We are looking at it happening between October and January, and then coming to you a couple of times between January and February to present a couple of drafts of the strategic plan to give you all enough time uh, to think about it and provide us some constructive feedback. And then the final adoption, and then it rolls into the budget. So kind of getting a little bit into the now part of it, which is still the pre-planning steps. What are things that uh, a staff is considering? We want to understand what are the clear objectives and goals for the strategic plan. We also would like to understand there are different ways we can do this, but how do we identify the oversight? We want to identify an oversight structure with clear roles and responsibilities. It could be a combination of the trustees playing a role in this, uh, obviously some internal staff, and who, who, which other key stakeholders should be included at the outset. And then, of course, we also want to then develop the strategic planning approach 
which would have some budget associated with this and then bring this back to you all to then tell us if this is the way we should be going. Uh, and of course, the work process itself, this is getting a little into the weeds, but this is important too. Do we want to be um, have this take place internally with staff? Do we look at a, a mix of internal with some external uh, people who are experts in this field? Or do we look at a mix? So we need some clarity there. Um, and of course, the timelines for the launch of the effort and completion date, some of which that I've already presented today. So in terms of the trustees' involvement, um, I you know, try to outline a set of slides that would explain uh, how this would play out uh, for your calendars, potentially. Uh, the highlighted yellow is still the pre-planning stages, uh, which we are talking today. Uh, we will circle back with um, some questions for you all. And uh, once we have some clarity there, we can come back, deliberate on the earlier questions that I shared. Um, uh, once you've given us some guidance and we'd come back with some sketch of how the plan process would look like in July and then the process would kick off with the values framework at that point in September hopefully uh, presented to you all and you all would have approved that and that, that again from the basis for us um, and then uh, the process would uh, uh, launch and uh, we'd be in the, um, the plan itself would be developed and a couple of readings to you all as I mentioned earlier January February and if things go as per plan, uh, we would uh, like to come to the, uh, you all in March uh, for your approval um, of this new um, uh, strategic plan for the next three to five years. So um, again, just um, you know, uh, pre-planning steps. Uh, I'll turn it back to uh, Trustee Bolada for questions and next steps. So, um, Anytime we talk about strategic planning, it can feel a little bit like um, a competition of you know different models and and different uh, um, approaches that you know can take anywhere from you know three or four days to just even iron out the model, right? And I just want to offer a step to potentially save a lot of time. Um, because one of the things that I'm a little concerned about is revisiting some things that I think are, for us, um, never changing. We're really clear about our mission, and I hope we're really clear about our values. Mm -hmm. What's somewhat interesting to me is that um, in some organizations where I've worked, we create very um, strong and uh, aspirational uh, priorities. So I'll give you an example. We will achieve health equity. That's an aspirational goal that will take us years. What's, d what's interesting about doing that is that from year to year, you would create SMART goals to successively approach that particular priority. And yet, that priority would not change over time. Um, another one might be to run fiscally responsible or fiscally uh, strategic budget. I mean, that's a priority. That's not going to change. But how are we going to do that? And I'd hate for us to, I guess what I'm just asking is, can we spend some time uh, perhaps just thinking about four to five priorities that then really shape the, the activities, those SMART goals, and we don't have to necessarily change those priorities 
for each strategic plan, but what we do have to do is change the way we're going to achieve them with our SMART goals. Um, I, I don't know if that's been done in other organizations, but I do want to be just cautious that we revisit something that I, I hope we haven't changed our mission. I hope we haven't changed our values, right? And then the, the stakeholder engagement um, becomes much more driven by looking at those SMART goals that align with the priorities and having stakeholders say, well, from where we sit and where we stand based on our experience of AHS or our, our unique connection to a community, you really do need a SMART goal on working in you know, these communities in this way. I just propose that as potentially a little bit of a time saver, but I do understand that there's a lot of models about how strategic planning um, is designed, and I don't want to by any means suggest that that's the only way. I'm just a little um, hesitant to try and revisit something that I think we've established for good, for the right reasons, for all of the essential um, foundational factors that make us who we are. I, can I add? I, I agree, and I feel like our mission and vision are very clear to people, but the values are not something that's visible, um, you know, really something that's kind of agreed on and shared about. So I, I agree that maybe the mission vision we we spend little time on, but the undergirding values is something that's, I think, very amorphous for internal stakeholders as well as our external stakeholders. So even if it's not like long drawn out or anything, but what are those like non-negotiable, like cornerstone benchmark things that this is what the how we execute our strategy. This is how we Im we bring our mission to fruition. Like, what are those uh, things? It's so important that, uh, for our internal stakeholders to also kind of get behind that, right? So I think that that the the and I've seen the value somewhere, like when we do the budget or the other. But I think it's not trickled and uh, understood as clearly by everybody. Is my my. I, I want to limit my uh, um, engagement to, to really get the, the richness of your, your feedback, but if I may, um, I completely agree with both of you. Um, um, we, uh, the culture's values work that Ishwari made reference to, I've shared with you before, um, was actually a byproduct or a direct result of exactly what you're saying, Trustee Banerjee, that um, over the course of the years, I think what we appreciated as a leadership team and uh, through feedback uh, internally and from you uh, is that um, there, maybe there was a bit of hastiness to trying to uh, uh, um, do the, the, the sort of uh, reaffirming work of the values uh, for the organization to the extent that they drive then that, uh, that vision and that mission work that really um, would have recognized the fact that we became a system. You know, we brought in two other entities that don't have the longevity of being in organization as uh, other parts of this <coughs> as well as there's been a lot of evolution within that so you you know sometimes when we've done certain things um, you know some of our values which are kind of um, supported by our pillars um, don't always resonate with people because they haven't internalized them so mm -hmm. when we talk about things like um, uh, you know sustainability and fiscal stewardship to some people that feels like 
why do you care about dollars? You know, why do you care about? And, and, and it's right. not that. You know, it's it's about you know making sure that the resources are best applied to or optimally applied, recognizing that uh, oftentimes needs are limitless and resources are limited. Uh, and so we're trying to find that balance between what is the best manifestation of our, of our values in furtherance of our vision. So I think your point is absolutely right. And I, I my sense is that a lot of high-performing organizations have a very nicely uh, uh, sort of woven story of a direction that they are, a road that they are on. And you don't see any like hard pivots. You know, it's kind of, this is what we have been about. This is what we continue to be about. Uh, what you see is a nice sort of meandering that is reflective of internal and external pressures and imperatives. And I think that's what we are hoping comes out of this. We don't, I don't at least expect at this point that uh, that we will have a change in our, our, our vision and our mission, but we think it is important that you actually ask those questions as a means of saying, is everybody on the same page? Because if then when we go to execute on it, you get, uh, you and we get that tension, we wanna, we wanna kind of do service to that work of saying, folks, we did grapple with this a little bit. And it's not going to be unanimous. I don't think uh, um, anybody would expect that anymore than you expected in your sort of personal lives. But, but the work of it, though, allows for probably a little bit more internalizing uh, for people to say this is, this is who we are at our core. And hopefully then for that to be supported by people saying, oh, I get why certain things are happening. Uh, even if I don't entirely agree with it, I, I, I see... I see the why, so um, I agree with you, and I hope that you know I, I am constantly thinking about this. Like, what is the arc of the the twenty year story that we tell, not just the five year story? Uh, that would say, yeah, you know that that the same thing is really um, true and uh, uh, a quarter us, and we didn't just take it for granted, but we're also making sure that to the point we hear all the time, the culture, the culture is with us and it supports that and it helps you to to uh, guide us in a way that you know is consistent and. Throughout the organization, so I hope that's the case. Yeah, I just want to echo support for that um, sort of approach. I uh, have been through many strategic plans that have been painful because they um, stay aspirational uh, way too long. The conversation, at least. So <clears throat> I think we should avoid that. And, and to get to boldness, I think we have to really look at smart goals that um, are attainable. Yeah. Um, that are um, that, that are bold, quite frankly. I mean, one one common theme throughout these strategies here that we maybe didn't anticipate enough when we started uh, our last plan was how much change was going to have to happen in terms of our relationships with stakeholders. And I think, you know, for example, I think it would be great to really focus on strategies and, and goals that actually zeroes in on how to uh, successfully navigate our relationships uh, with others. You know, uh, and, the, and the big one, of course, I think is our relationship with Alameda County. And uh, I think we ought to get you know, pretty uh, specific about how we'd like to improve that uh, working relationship uh, because I think it's really clear now um, the goals of the county and the goals of the health system have to be integrated. And it's just, it's so obvious. It's on the streets of Oakland. Uh, you walk out of this building, you see homeless people and the struggle with the safety net uh, that the county's having 
is the same struggle we're having uh, in, in our uh, care. Uh, so that's a shared goal, and let's. Uh, so I, I think developing strategies to get at that uh, would be a good way to go. And Kim and I were whispering here, probably breaking the rules, but uh, the. Uh, so I'll say it publicly. Uh, <laughs> I think it's also important that we, and I think your timeline allows for this, that we. Uh, that we're careful within the budget process to make sure we have enough time to incorporate any changes that we might make um, in next year's budget process. Um, that's for our CFO. Yeah, so I, what I would really like to do is to have the, uh, the, the plan done by February because it becomes our target for the next year's budget. So that means I gotta build out whatever is created in detail and we would need that by February to, to adequately get it done. Yeah, we, we were sensitive to, to that. Uh, uh, and we know, I mean, one of the challenges is the board doesn't meet in December. Uh, and when we thought we needed that uh, time to kind of, I mean, we're, we're going from, again, compressing from a 14, mm -hmm. 13 to 14 month process to a three month process. We believe we have enough maturity and alignment as an organization to be able to pull that part off. Uh, I, my sense is, unless there is, if we've totally missed a mark, in which case a month won't matter. Uh, here, sharing it in January and February gives us at least enough of a, um, of a directional sense that we can start to incorporate in the budget, even if, I mean, I agree with you, ideally we can get the approval in February, and that's what we've laid out, but, uh, and then that March you see reflected, and it also gets to this point that we've often struggled with um, as a sequence, and probably we'll do more about this uh, when we're done, is that we want the, the, um, the goals and the uh, um, uh, direction, strategic direction, to drive the budget, not the other way around. Right. And so, yeah, the extent to which we can lay those out, exactly what you're saying, then we can embed them and you know that that is, and everybody can appreciate that that's where we're going. But your point is absolutely right. Yeah, I love the discussion and the comments so far and echo pretty much all of them, I think. Um, our mission isn't going to change, but it's also extremely broad, and it sort of doesn't give us any uh, tool for you know how we do decision making. Um, the vision is very aspirational, as it's supposed to be. Also, probably doesn't give us specific tools to make decisions. And so, um, for me, the best uh, I think as a trustee, I feel like the strategic plan should help me when we have critical decision making that we can go back to what we said was our values framework. Yeah. and apply that to the decision making. Um, and so I think it's really critical um, as to what both Maria and Kinkini were saying, just that we sharpen sort of the, the, the I think the values part of it um, specific to sort of our process. And so, um, you know, the example of when we were really struggling and actually looking at where would we have to potentially reduce services, um, it, it really highlighted for me the fact that we didn't have this to fall back on, right? So it's like right. we've got mental health, we've got, you know, women's services, we've got children services, and as we were having the discussions about what to do, it just all sounded bad and scary, but we, there was no sort of like you could have made an argument for anything because we really didn't have, um, so for example, if we said, uh, 
you know, one of our values is making sure that we are filling major gaps in the safety net, right? Then that's a yeah. different decision-making process mm -hmm. than saying, no, we have to focus on our children because the children are the future or just whatever, you know, whatever the, um, and so I think um, for me, that's where I think it would become really, that that's where um, it becomes a very useful and sort of actionable tool. Um, and, and that's where I feel that the board can be really effective in helping move things along because because then whomever we're talking to, whether it's external stakeholders or whether it's internally about why we're making the decisions we're making, it's, it, it's based on this process that we've gone through and some values that we've really um, thought through to help us. And so I appreciate you saying you want this by February because for me, again, that's if we need to make these critical decisions, we've already got this in place and so that it's not sort of the financials dictating the decision making but the other sort of the, the values, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, one last request. I don't think a strategic plan should be more than five pages. Think about that for a moment. Um, if you're really clear about your mission, vision, and values, and create, you know, a set of strategies, right? You should be, you should be, not an eight-point font. No. It, it's really, it, really got to be very clean and really specific around, you know, the strategies, those SMART goals we leave to you all to have in your, you know, internal working documents. Um, and let's not forget what SMART means, realistic, okay? If, if we are putting something on a paper and it cannot be done financially, I, I hope, Kim, you feel very free to say, this is not doable, this is not SMART, Get a okay? <laughs> I think that's why I'm called CFO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you. Uh, one thing to the, um, you, we do need to involve our county partners. And, and I think that, to your point, this has to be simple enough that we can explain it, yeah. you know, you know, quickly in a, in a meeting with, with the supervisor and, and have them embrace it themselves and say, okay, I get where they're going. I also want to know how, where in here the plan is to really go deep down in the organization to get input from our frontline staff. Like, is there is there a way to use technology to solicit their input without over-surveying people to death? Because I know you worry about, you know, employee engagement and asking too many questions, but is there a way to get yeah, feedback on, on what we're coming up with some, somewhere in this process so that, uh, so the folks that were here under public comment uh, feel like they were part of that yeah. input process? Um, two years from now when we're in the middle of a plan and we're having to make a difficult decision to meet that plan so that they understand that that's, you know, they were part of that. I, I'll, I'll, well, actually, you, I'll. <laughs> no, this is, again, I was going to say, this is the kind of feedback they're seeking, so we'll make sure we build that into that process between September and uh, December to involve frontline employees and think through creative ways we can do that, either it's, um, uh, you know, uh, inviting them to meetings or using technology. I don't know what the solutions are, but now that you've given us this framework, yeah. we'll make sure that's included. Well, one thought is, could we start now? And, you know, and um, could we start now by sharing our current plan with our staff and say, this is the road we've been on the past mm -hmm. four years? Because I bet a lot of them don't know. I bet a lot of them just, you know, because mm -hmm. they've got their job, they've got their work, they had to deal with whatever change came their way, whether they're at San Leandro or they're a doctor 
you know, migrating from Oak Care to Nuco, or whether they're a, you know, a, a rehab person who moved from Fairmont. You know, like they're dealing with their own thing. I, like, I wonder if there's a way to say this was the road that we've been on, and we're about to draw the map for the next five years. So we get them thinking about it now, and then hit them in the in the, in the summer with, you know, to give us some some input. So I'll add to it. Uh, so the team is one of my favorite uh, quotes. Uh, the problem with communication is the illusion that it has already occurred. Yes. Uh, um, uh, yes. Um, we, uh, there is a way that we can do it now. I want to tell you, so there are ways that we do do it, but again, people hear what they can hear and what they're prepared to internalize at the moment. So, so in a lot of our town halls, we remind people of that, and we do have actually a, 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 a somewhat succinct uh, one-pager that kind of shows the, the journey. Uh, obviously, it goes into more detail, uh, uh, but we do oh, try to do that. Did you share that? Uh, we have. We, we again. <laughs> Communication. So, yes, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I call myself. Yes. yes, we can absolutely share that with you, uh, and we will share that with you. Oh, no, 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 it's okay. We will, you know what? You ask, you don't have it, we'll give it to you. Uh, but to your point, we will do that with staff. Uh, I want to pin to what this Roy said. Uh, so this is feedback for us about how to do it and when we get into the depths of the planning process. But the, uh, the values framework step that we're talking about, just to remind you, uh, we are engaging in a uh, process that's similar to what we're doing with the uh, format for the health equity, diversity, and inclusion. By the way, uh, the staff participants in that work were not selected by leadership. Uh, we actually uh, gave it to the task force leaders to identify the staff who uh, would be selected for it. But in this case, too, we are looking for ways in which to get a variety of stakeholders across the organization involved in the work of informing uh, it. And there'll be people involved in sort of steering the work, and there'll be people in, in, in involved in informing uh, the work. And that's where it'll cut across the organization. So there's that one piece. And then in the, um, the uh, planning part, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll try to come up with um, a way to balance like how you get timely and specific uh, feedback that people can offer from their various perspectives um, um, in a way that's easy for them to do and that doesn't uh, make the process as projected as it was the last time because that's what we did we did all these like stakeholder engagement groups at different times of the day and you know it just kind of spread things out for months on end uh, so we'll try to balance that but uh, your point that you want to make sure that when, as it comes to you that something of that order has been done we'll, mm -hmm. we'll try to frame that and bring it back to you in July and if you feel we've struck the right tone or the right balance then great if not then we'll uh, open to feedback in as well. Yeah and I, I just suggest because you all this is so high level so obviously when you give a, a timeline of this is when we are going to do engagement you've got all of that. I really even if we pull in a subset of folks to be kind of spokesperson like you know to be be doing that work online surveys and things like that more is, and I know crunching the data and feeling that, but because again and again, one of the things that we've heard because of all the big things that, that trust is the currency that needs to be built up is that it's, a, it's work, but at least then we can feel, look, we really were trying to be as inclusive in the time frame that we had. Whoever got a chance to give the input, gave an input and we, collected that so there there was no you know there was a real um, emphasis and an investment in us to be able to capture voices that normally otherwise might not be at the table and doing that so you know um, 
it's the it's the optics, it's the yeah. real stuff, it's all of those nuances that you're managing, the real input too, because sometimes uh, those voices don't get carried. Absolutely, and just quickly, some of that, uh, when we frame it, uh, gets to uh, the point as far as making around uh, the resources necessary for it too. So, um, uh, you know, we're going to try to come up with a budget that says either we will do this ourselves or we'll have external indictment, which we'd love your uh, um, uh, input on because to the extent that we need to do a lot of uh, uh, staff engagement that may require additional resources, we can put it in the budget. Uh, if you say that's very important and we want to make it happen, uh, particularly within a con um, condensed time frame, but it helps us to hear what you think about that. I mean, that was going to be my point. I would say that, that, that especially with regard to um, key informants and stakeholders, that work might be better done by an outside party. Mm -hmm. And um, so I would suggest that you cost that out. But I also want to say this is a great opportunity. It's a, it's a great plan and it's a great opportunity to that point to our stakeholders and our population and all, all of our, our patients and staff. It's a great opportunity to show what we can do and, and to be ready to respond quickly in the future when we want to do something else. And I, to, to um, Noah's point too, I, you know, we, we are, this organization has so many things that over the past hundred and X years that have been put into the organization and it, it, it all is cumulative and it comes together. We've got to kind of flesh it out and cut it out if we need to and see what's necessary and what, what our, um, our, our, our plan is for the future. So I appreciate this. And hopefully it can be a tool also not just to make hard decisions but to make strategic decisions as we move forward. What do we need more of? What do we need to um, really focus on making more financially viable or to have a greater impact in some way? But we have a basis kind of for doing that. I guess one of the questions I have for trustees when we say engaging our stakeholders, you know, I know we've talked about the county. Uh, you mentioned Oakland as well. You know, there's, um, we, we impact and are impacted by so many systems and sectors mm -hmm. in the local area that I want us to maybe think a little bit outside the, the you know, the obvious, we need to obviously work with healthcare services agency and um, board of supervisors, but are there others that maybe um, in the past we have not engaged that we could be engaging. Um, particularly, I think, um, for me anyway, in, in my regular day job, the, the homelessness crisis has really forced sort of a, a lot of cross-sector communication that maybe wasn't happening before because you have you might have you know city departments and county departments that are involved with whatever the presenting issues may be. Um, we also obviously have a very intimate relationship with um, the criminal justice, with Oakland police, with our sheriff, with probation, um, with social services. You know these are things that our, our patients are touching all of these other systems. So it's just a question. I realize that that's a lot. <laughs> so it's already a lot. Um, but I guess I'm just wondering from the perspective of the trustees, you know, whether this is something worth thinking about in terms of, you know, how, uh, and it may not be in the strategic planning processes, maybe something separate, I'm not sure, but just in terms of thinking how we partner better, if that's what part of the strategic planning is and being good, good partners, um, you know, is that something that we think is useful and also sort of at what point or at what stage or is it not part of strategic planning but, but still important? Yeah. Um. <clears throat> Sorry, you, you like kick 
lose a thought in my head. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, this week was the, uh, in Oakland hosted uh, the National Alliance to End Homelessness. And I would have been there this morning, but for my agreeing to be here. Uh, so I, I've, I've been at some of the conferences the, the last couple of days. And one of the breakouts I went to was um, about you know opportunities in, in healthcare to address homelessness, and you know the the, the mantra was you know healthcare or ho housing is healthcare, you know, and that you know the homelessness is hazardous to your health, and and we're we're seeing it so front line, and I think there may be greater federal funding opportunities, and uh, an opportunity for healthcare systems to be in the business of housing. And I, I don't say that to say that we should take on new initiatives that are going to kill us, but that we be conscious about our, our, our funding streams or funding streams that might exist that really take care of the whole person and, and that deal with our throughput issue, um, deal with our, our, our reimbursement issue, uh, and deal with the issue of just the overall health of our, the population that we serve. And I think you're right. So I, I, I do feel like there needs to be some acknowledgement of that in this in this strategic plan process because of the crisis that the whole nation is now finding itself in. Yeah, if I could just add to that, that it seems very appropriate uh, for Alameda Health System to be a convener. Mm. To There are many gaps in the conversation. I know the cities are in battle with the county now. The state is trying to do its own regional thing. And it, it seems like... Uh, there might be a good uh, opportunity in the future uh, around the homeless issue and other public health issues to be a convener, to pull people in to have a conversation and start it from, uh, from our lens of health care, but really from the lens of you know, healthier community and what we all sort of aspire to as a value, but we tend to be talking in different rooms. So mm -hmm. I think... Um, I think it's not just aspirational. This can be very specific. Yeah, exactly. Plus, and I think really coming into our own as an anchor institution and our leadership value, like really kind of lean into that because this is our chance to create a future that doesn't exist right now. So we, if we are going to engage in it, like we need to kind of think through scenarios to be doing something. So convening and bringing like systems mapping and seeing who's in our ecosystem, outside our ecosystem that we need to be thinking about um, if we want to see that kind of aspirational health equity, you know, um, <coughs> role that we have to play. So that's a priority. We are a container of systems This is very helpful. Thank very, you. Very, very helpful. Um, yeah. Was question three answered? Or, or just want a clarity uh, from yes. the trustees here. Who should be involved in development of pre-planning steps and values framework? So how involved does the board of trustees um, want to be in sort of at what stages in the pre-planning? Do we want to create an ad hoc committee? Um, or is this something that we feel we just want sort of status reports back on? or, or what um, I would point out that the, the board had a strategic planning committee <coughs> when it was established, and it's still in the bylaws. 
Is it still the bylaws or is that a well, I don't think the bylaws have been changed for a while. Yeah, I mean, uh, I no, they, were, they were changed in 16, but I don't know if it was. No, no, it was a standing committee, but yeah. I chaired it and I was part of oh. sunsetting it because <laughs> I felt that too much of the strategy was happening in a small group and not coming to mm -hmm. the level of the board. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Similar to what we've said about QPSC, sometimes some of these substantive quality discussions happen in QPSC as they should but and no then when we come to a whole full board meeting we are like we already discussed that in QPSC so mm -hmm. it's like so um, surface level so um, I mean if it's an ad hoc it could be but uh, we the, the, a lot of the really um, strategic uh, engagement that should have been happening at the full board was happening with the small group and that's why we decided no no this really needs to be getting, um, you know, uh, a two-level uh, two board where there's a lot of strategy happening in a small group, but not, not with everybody. It, it does feel like the full board needs to weigh in, though, on some of these fundamentals. So um, when is our next? Until July. July. Until July. Mm, okay. So that's the that's the challenge. Yeah. Well, could we consider well, we, we having? We have an April retreat. Yeah. No, that's budget. That's oh, budget. Oh, sorry. Yeah. But I think you know, I think strategic planning is and the values discussion is important. I mean, can it be a small part of all, all of our agendas? I mean, talking about the next year essentially. Uh, it, I. Anything's possible. If you want it, yes. Uh, I mean, if there's something substantive yeah. or questions that are coming out of the process, I mean, I do feel like strategic planning process um, is largely one that's going to happen within the organization. It's not for the board of trustees to d dictate how you know how it's going. But I do think that to the extent that you need our feedback or that you know that there are questions that are coming out. I think we want to be here for that, and we want to be involved so that we can support. You know the effort and the plan after it's rolled out. I guess that's all I was thinking about that we would agendize it uh, throughout the next nine months and just have a discussion from time to time. The full board report back from staff and a dialogue to, to sharpen it up as we move to something more permanent. What we're here is I'm sorry. No, please. Could go we ahead. like maybe could we use our full board meetings to have like a little bit of strategy mm -hmm. discussion so yeah. that rather than that, you know have right. that. Yeah. So. That's what I'm thinking. Okay. Yeah. You just said it more succinctly. <laughs> <laughs> you said. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we could do the values auction exercise. Have you guys done that one? Where you have all the you have values and you have to decide like. Yeah. Uh, it's, you, you weigh yeah, them. Yeah, weigh them. You like weigh them. 10 bucks for this one, $15 for that one. No, I, mean, I think we did enough. that last year in the budget process. Yeah, it didn't work out so well. That could be a good activity for a retreat. For April. For April. I did just want to, I wanted to kind of piggyback on the idea about being a convener and sort of leading systems change because, I mean, one thing I think um, would be useful to highlight more than I think we do is that we are a model for systems change. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are changing within our system. You talk about pay parity, um, you talk about uh, local sourcing and, you know, how we're doing our um, socially responsible procurement. I mean, those are phenomenal examples of systems change where we're actually walking the walk and are serving as a model. 
And so I think that I think that's an important piece that we're really a leader in that way. Um, I also just want to call out that we are still um, responsible for the most downstream, end of the stream, whatever's happening in our community, and that is our number one priority about serving all. And so we could have not foreseen the homelessness crisis and the cost and the pressure we put on our system, and that is our first priority. So that, that's the kind of thing, that balance, you know, that's always just going to be a challenge that I think it's important to name because I feel like we almost need that plan ABC or like that contingency planning for ourselves that these are some things that we are going to strive for, keeping in mind like our imperative that does not change no matter what. Yeah. Exactly. And I would just say, like we've discussed in the past, we are serving um, we are serving people that would have other means and formerly had other means of being served, but um, because of decisions by um, the county and others, they are now being served by us. And this would be this would be um, the forensic service that we provide. So we do serve all, but sometimes we serve all, and, and voluntarily—not involuntarily, but because of decision making <laughs> that isn't our own. It's not part of our strategic plan, so we have to keep that in mind too. Things beyond our control. Things, yes. Yeah. Similar to homeless, but not exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, what are next steps? Well, I've heard of that this will be part of the board agenda moving forward. Um, I think you've given us some guidelines for us to put our heads together, and you've given us some principles for us to think through and bring back at your July retreat uh, what the planning process would look like. And we present that to you for your feedback at that point. But between now and then, uh, we you, I also heard you all say that you'd like to hear us to um, inform um, and also learn about where we are with the values framework. We, be, we plan to start that sometime in April. Um, so after that, we will be bringing back the updates to you for your feedback as well as for um, keeping you informed. Fantastic. Is there anything else I missed? I don't think so. Trustees, any other questions, comments? Thank, Thank, Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Were there any questions on any of the staff reports? I have a question um, just about the, the cover. Uh, I, you, um, you, you provide a memo as a cover for the financial reports, which is great. But it, and it says in the first sentence, um, the financial statement format has been modified, beginning with the December close to more closely aligned with our annual audited financial statement. So my question is, how was it being done before? Was it not aligned, or was it? So we, we internally presented the information differently. The, the biggest difference was the post-retirement, the, basically the uh, non-funded pension based on the actuarial um, projection. So eventually we do pay that, but it's, it's you know, the actuary adjustment is, is you know. It lags, right? It lags a very long time, right? So. Um, what we did is we put it as non-operating, oh. so that's the biggest change. So I've moved it up into operating, but so that we have consistency, I'm showing the math adding to EBITDA, which is basically cash flow, mm -hmm. which is where we were getting anyway. So I think that um, 
Doing it this way will make sure that when folks look at our audit report, they look at our internal financials, they'll see the same numbers, and we can all get back to the targets that we're setting internally, which is really based on EBITDA and our margin. So, uh, and that's the cash that we have that we can go towards paying off debt or capital and all of those things. Great, and that's more, well, is it a GASB requirement or standard that we were not Doing or is it we chose internally okay. not to adopt GASB in our operating financials or income statement. I can't say that that was wrong. I'm sure there were good reasons sure. because it was a big number and it probably threw off all of the historical trends because we didn't go back and you know restate all of our internal financials for that change. So I can see why we didn't. But I thought now it's been in place a number of years. We've got consistency. So why not just adopt it, especially since I kept hearing what we showed different numbers. And I thought, well, that's an easy one right there to fix. Mm -hmm. So it, is, it, it has always been in our audited financials. Right. Right. So counting on this has been Thank you. Uh, appropriate. Thank you. It's the way we're reporting. Right. In the yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. internally, you know, you don't, when we, when every organization produces internal financial statements, they may do it for a special purpose, but externally, everybody has to follow generally accepted accounting principles or government accounting principles, and so our audit was done compliantly, it's just that we internally reflected it different. So now we'll marry up, but we still get to the same place, which is what I think really important for us to, to manage, and that is is evident how much yeah. cash flow are we driving um, into the organization for capital and to pay off debt. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, as the chair of the finance committee, I just want to make sure that uh, I know trustees read their packets. But <laughs> I uh, really want to make sure you pay attention to the revenue cycle management report that came out of uh, finance committee. Starts on page 119. And there's an awful lot of red on the dashboard here. Um, I think Kim might want to add a little bit, you know, not go through the whole thing, but just give us the lowdown of how much we're struggling. Uh, post go live, the big slide. Yeah, so there's, there's a, a sheet that looks like this, which is what we call HB, which is the hospital or technical portion of our revenue cycle. And then there's PB, which is the professional portion, which is the physician um, billings. Both are not in a in a good place. We are below a bottom performer of Epic based on this many months into the implementation. Um, you know, this is a is a is a real problem. I'm losing sleep over it. <laughs> um, I've been very frustrated. <laughs> um, but uh, with that, I'll, I will speak to a lot of the things that we are doing. But I will let you know today that we're in a little better place. So since last week when I reported, uh, there's, there's basically three metrics that I want everyone to focus on. One is CFB, which is candidates for billing. That is uh, claims that are sitting in here that should be out the door, but there's something holding them up. We have, uh, Mark will have to help me on this, like more than a thousand different work queues, and claims get stuck in these. And, they, and they're to be directed to the right person to fix it. But because we're so new at this, people don't 
know how to fix it. And so we're having to have to retrain and figure it out. And then in addition to that, um, the second metric is claim edits. And, and that one I'm calling out specifically because it's high. But what's causing it is the fact that we, in a sense, did a big bang. We went live with Epic, but we also went live with a new clearinghouse. And that clearinghouse has been with us for a long time, and there were a lot of edits in there. And I don't think we ever reconciled what we'll need to go into change our new clearinghouse. And granted, Epic is different. It's not one of our legacy systems, and probably that we didn't do as good of a job as we could have done or even foreseen that they would have been this different. Uh, so there's right now um, almost 400 external edit errors, which is probably the biggest or the second biggest bucket of claims that's sitting in-house. And we have to work those one by one by one by one. So uh, that's the second. And the third is cash. If we're not getting the cash in, we got a problem. If everything else can look the way it looks, if that money's not there, there's a problem. And, and this is more yes. than $50 million right now according to this. Yeah, so you, I think in my um, report there's a graph and you can yeah. see kind of a box and you can add it up and it pretty much equals what's here. Uh, so I think everybody's aligned. We're not making an error in our reporting or anything like that. So let me just give you an update. So uh, candidate for billing for, and, and I'm mostly just, I'm just going to talk to HB unless you want me to go to PB. PB is in a much better shape. It's still red. But HB is where we've got our, our real big concern. So we were at 22.2 in the week. We've dropped it to 21.8. I expect another 20 million to drop off tonight. So you know we made uh, uh, some some big headway this week. Great. Um, progress. Yeah, it is. It's it's you painful. Sleep a little bit more. <laughs> How did you make that progress? Um, in that particular area, it was working. A lot of those claims that we rebuild, and yeah. then we had to one by one manually go back out, yeah. work them to get them out. Yeah. There's a host of other billing areas as well that we made improvement on. Staff is really focused. They're all working overtime, really trying to get, get the bolus of these claims out the door. Uh, claim edits was the second item I, I talked to you about. Today we're at 4.8. Last week we were at 7.3. So here we got a task force. We got five people dedicated to this. They have already made big progress. Uh, it's a cross-functional team. Uh, we pulled somebody that used to work with our um, edits in our old exchange. We got an, uh, some IT folks that are sharp. We've got um, a consultant that's leading the group, and they are uh, making headway <coughs> on the payment. Uh, the way that Epic measures it is um, by a payment variance in weeks. So a bottom performer is usually about 2.5 weeks behind in their cash collections at this point. We are, we were 5.4 weeks. We are currently 3.8 weeks. So we've made some headway there. And some of some of that. Is that a Some of that issue was mapping. We have actually gotten some dollars that weren't, for some reason, and I can't explain why, our mapping wasn't good. So when we get the electronic remittance and it's supposed to automatically post to accounts, it, it wasn't mapped correct to the payer. So 
we've had to, to rework that. Um, so those are the those are the three big ones. Um, what what we're doing is we started a hit list uh, maybe three or four weeks ago, um, and it was driven by revenue cycle. And the idea here is. Um, in the work use for the revenue cycle, there's like a massive amount of claims. And what they were doing is they were saying, well, I don't know how to fix this. That's an IT issue. I submitted a ticket. And IT's over there with 300-some tickets. They're doing their best to try to prioritize them and work them. But my team didn't have that same ownership. So what we did is we gave them ownership. We empowered them. We said, look, these are in your work queue. It does not matter whether you can fix it or not. You need to understand it, and you need to be engaging with whoever can fix it. You own it is kind of the, the, the new uh, term that we've adopted, or <laughs> or maybe I've gotten labeled with. I don't know. <laughs> they, they, they yell it to her on the call. <laughs> <laughs> I own it. I own it. I own it. I'm on it. I got it. So, um, and we're continuing with elbow support, and you probably saw in my letter that we're over in purchase services as a result of that, and we're going to be, because we've, we've got to be successful. This cannot fail. So if it means that we got to have somebody that sits side by side with our leaders to make sure that they know how to use Epic, they're holding staff accountable in Epic, everything's transparent. You can see how many hours an employee is on the system. You can see how many claims they work. You can see if somebody moves, you know, certain claims to somebody else's queue to get them out of theirs. Doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily work, but you can see all of this. So um, I'm glad that I can report that we improved since last week, but we do have a long ways to go. Yeah. And, and so, Kim, is this was this an original training issue that you think was just a miss, or is it that? There's a lot of complexity to this, and so it's very hard. What would you say? I think it's a combination of several things, starting with one. You know, our old systems were not, they didn't work like this. Yeah. So we expected our entire organization to make this massive change. Yeah. So that's just number one. No matter what we did, it was going to be a challenge. Two, we didn't have a VP of Revenue Cycle in place, and I think that's a key role as mm -hmm. part of this. Mm -hmm. And I think um, when we went through, you know, building out our uh, workflows, folks in our existing AR um, world haven't lived in an Epic environment or a Cerner environment. I mean, in some ways, it's great. We have a lot of um, employees that have been here for a long time that know a lot of things, know our specific contracts and that sort of stuff. But this is like changing their whole world around. Mm -hmm. And so I think that when we did those workflows, folks didn't really engage or understand how the decisions they were making in the build were going to impact us on the back end. Mm -hmm. And the third biggest item I want to I want to call out again is this change of the clearinghouse. I don't know how many people do this at the same time as they go yeah. live with Epic, but I think we completely underestimated what the impact of that was going to be. So, so do you you think once uh, we get you know the bumps in the road out of it, uh, that it'll be uh, that we have a potential to collect more revenues you know on a cash basis than we did under the legacy system? I think that we do have opportunity. I, um, Epic, because it's so transparent, 
Um, if we could, one of the things I also want to do is get the, the uh, behavioral health billing onto EPIC so we uh -huh. can see denials and work denials. I think that um, with care coordination, if we can start using the system to understand exactly why uh, you know, a patient is still here and start um, uh, may, uh, developing programs to improve it. I mean, granted, you know, we can never discharge to the tree on the corner. Yeah. You know, that's just never going to happen. But there are a lot of other things that hold up patients. And I think if we actually have that kind of information in a transparent way, it will really help us in what you all were talking about earlier with the strategic plan. If we can go and talk to some of the other stakeholders and we can say we've got this many patients, this is what they need, this is what's holding them up, you know, what can we do to get them to the appropriate level of care? Yeah. I so think it will help a lot. Behavioral health is not on EPIC right now? No. So right now um, the county uses a software called in Insight? Insist. Insist. And it's more than just <laughs> us <laughs> in that. <laughs> Yeah. I want to say because then you'll see. Thank you. <laughs> but, uh, and they have to they have to do the billing for behavioral health because the county is ultimately responsible for this part of health care. So they bill once a month. And what we have been doing is daily inputting all of our information into their system. As you know, or as maybe you don't know, but things change. Payers change, you know, uh, the status changes. I mean, there's lots of things that change. Like when a patient comes in, they might not be in a situation even to give us their correct birth date, okay? So we get that way later down the line. Um, in, the, in the PES world, they only uh, will allow us a 20-hour period to bill. So that's all we set up in our old system. But the reality is we need to know what services we're providing, whether we get paid for them or not. So we need to charge for them need to be in our system. Can, can you tell them how we actually bill them? Oh, so So we do this every day, and then we try to reconcile back to their system. And believe me, it's never going to be the same because there's no source of truth, yeah. right? There's no letter. It's yeah, just, you know, this data. one's moving, this one's moving. Because, you know, in their system, they're trying to get authorizations and they're, you know, they're billing and they're getting denials. But, you know, unless somebody manually by paper tries to work this stuff, it's, it's lost. So what we basically do is at the end of the month, we go back like probably two months before, and we, out of our system, get uh, our charges, and then we try to put it in the language of the contract and send it to the county. We never get anything back from the county that tells us which, how much they paid us for each, each patient. They do give us a list of denials, but it doesn't tie back. It doesn't, there's no, it doesn't tie back. We're just constantly not reconciled. And it's, uh, I think it's just a process that's evolved over time. So we've created this work group. We've now spent probably, I don't know, 12 hours or so with the county. And I think um, we're at a place where we agree that we can do this better, both sides. I mean, obviously the county has to have what they need to bill. And, and they also need to have what they need to get authorizations. Yeah. So the two things that are probably going to make the biggest difference is one, if we can give them more access into EPIC so that they can get their authorizations quicker. 
and they can have the information and work in our system, maybe do concurrent reviews in our system. That would be one big help. And then the second is that we don't put the information into their system to bill either until the end of each discharge or a day after or two days after when uh -huh. we've got solid information. Uh -huh. Or we wait till the end of the month when we do our billing and then we put it all in and then we give them a bill, right? So uh, that, those are the two things that we're, we're uh, working on. I don't know how far we will get, but both sides are definitely engaged. Everybody wants to improve things, so it's it's been a really good good process. Luis was uh, at the first the marathon one when we walked through everything. I don't know if you want to add anything. Uh, um, Luis was a, a great partner to me in this. Uh, he uh, he stood up after we all had this crazy process on the board and said, "So let me understand this. <laughs> we we get, start here and we get there, and what's all this in the middle?" <laughs> It was it was quite classic. I would tell you it's not it's a problem that's not unique to yeah, us. Right. You know, mm -hmm. uh, across the state, there the counties have three or four different billing systems that they built a state for behavioral health, and everybody's looking for a way that you can put it into one system and get all the information in, and it's 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 a challenge everywhere. Yeah, and, and I, I would say that, uh, you know, as part of these conversations, I mean, you know, to, to be very clear that, you know, the county recognizes that INSYST is not the best solution, yeah. and so they are actively working to create an RFP to identify a solution that will have interoperability with not just EPIC, you know, to support us, but also all of the other many users across the county. So they are actively working on that, but they equally recognize that that doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Um, you know, and it has to go through all the different county processes, and so that may take some time. And so there is this shared, uh, you know, desire and urgency to really advance some improvements in, in our systems currently to see how we can manage this. So creating some workarounds, but really making it even easier than what it is now. You know, one thing I would say about the, the insist, and to, to Kim's point, you know, there, you know, there's currently dual entry happening in uh, EPIC and in INSYST, and that's where you have these discrepancies and these challenges. In the proposed plan, there will still have to be an, an, an initial encounter entered into INSYST because that's what then gives the providers at John George what's the, this form called the MHS 140, which is what then gives them all of the details of how this person is connected, this patient is connected with other resources within the county, do they have a case manager, do they have a conservatorship, so on and so forth. And so they still have to do that initial entry, but the goal would be that after that, they're doing all of the clinical, all the reviews, all authorizations, everything kind of using EPIC, and then we would just do this reconciliation at the end where you're minimizing all these changes that can occur during a patient's visit. And so that's, I mean, but again, just get in the weeds, but that's, it's still complex. <laughs> and one other thing too, if. In a, in a perfect world, if, if the county knew that this was the system they were going to stick with, we could do some IT solutions. Like one would be to do a shadow bill where when they posted it, their the 837 or 835, whatever comes back from the state on what they're going to pay and what the denials are, it could be autom automatically posted to them, and then we could shadow post it to ours mm -hmm. all automatically. So there's a lot of stuff we could do. And, and probably in that, that bill, and, you know, the, the county's not going to want individual claims like we would send somebody else. But I'm sure that IT could develop a report that would automate the billing process. So there's a lot of things that, that, that can be done. And, but the only way 
you know, as if both parties work together because we have to know what they what the county needs so that they are successful because it takes both of us. So, and just to it's funny to start off as a brief finance update, uh, but you know, <laughs> all, all, all quite important. All quite important. So I hope I hope this is uh, helpful to the trustees. Um, uh, I don't know if I heard you say. Can't forgive me if you did, but I think uh, contextually, and this is only just for context. It's not uh, anywhere where we we'll land, but. Um, Notwithstanding the challenges that she's so uh, sorry, uh, the challenges that she's so uh, thoroughly articulated, um, we are roughly performing about as well as we were before Epic uh, in terms of uh, overall kind of uh, rev cycle. Uh, so that's not to say anything good about the current state. It's just that the prior state was uh, um, a whole lot less reliable because there's so much potential that we see in the future. Or, or yeah, the, just to the give you the state. date, we used to run at 14 days of claims in house. Mm -hmm. So that was our DNFB. We call that discharge, not final bill. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was high in our legacy system. Yeah. And the other well, is in the sort. Oh. Sorry, no, please. But yeah, just I mean, the bottom of the page, the, the, the dashboard. We're down. We're Sorian was 78 days on AR, right? Mm -hmm. And we're at 73. Well, actually, we're lower now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but remember, we've got a lot of stuff sitting here that hasn't been billed out. Right. So. Yeah. So, so I've a long way to go, uh, but I, I want to uh, at least give you some sense that we knew the dip would happen. The bottom has not fallen out. So I, I want you to have that context. And we are actively working. I want to really commend uh, Kim and Mark and the team. And there's other people supporting it uh, a bit more tangentially, but they're really, really working quite diligently to uh, uh, get us out of the, the trough that we expected, that we're experiencing, that's going a little bit longer than we had hoped or wanted, but uh, actively, actively uh, working to get that passed. And just one other contextual uh, um, um, uh, uh, sort of correction. Uh, we had a VP of reimbursement during the time that we were doing this work. Uh, that person unexpectedly uh, went out on a long-term uh, lead, uh, at which point we uh, very, uh, uh, diligently tried to slog through as much as we could with the leadership uh, and the, uh, 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 the resources we had in place, and that did, I think it's fair to say, result in some inability to do, uh, let's say less than ideal uh, ability to do some of the thorough work that we otherwise would have done, both with the clearing houses as well as with uh, uh, just kind of the continuation of the um, um, sort of future state, current state uh, calibration. So I think that's a good point. I just wanted to... And you know, it wasn't probably also had a CFO void as well. Ah, uh, they remember that part. I haven't... Uh, well, they are considered a regular full-time employee, um, but uh, he's temporary. He's doing this. He's been with us. He's been... Uh, uh, trying to trying to help us through this whole situation. His name was Craig Carlson. I have the utmost respect for him, but he wants to retire. Mm -hmm. He's doing this just to help get us through. Um, he was retired. He was retired, yes. He would like to be retired again. But, <laughs> yeah. but he's uh, been willing to stay on, and he's willing to help me transition to you know whoever we can we replace the position with. But uh, I'm really very thankful to him because if he would have left back when I started, I don't I don't know where I would be right now. So. I don't want to think about it. <laughs> and I also want to say one other thing on the on the uh, John George. This is going to come up again because we are still just writing off all those accounts. We're not using Epic. So we're going to have to fix the bill, but that is not the highest priority, obviously, this stuff is. So yeah. it will, you will be hearing more about that. Got it. 
if I may uh, provide a little more additional context uh, for, for those of us who weren't on the, I'm on the Finance Committee, so I, I'm going to repeat some statements that I made in that statement. So this is my 13th, going into my 13th year as the Chief of GI here at Highland. And uh, only over the past two months have I gotten regular reports on bills which have not advanced for submission. Mm -hmm. This is my 13th year mm -hmm. here. Wow. So, so what I say to you, Trustee Peterson, is I, I have pragmatic optimism here because, <laughs> because we can, we can, we're actually seeing things that yeah, we right. were not yeah. able to see in real time before. So I think that is amazing. So there's actually a, a list to manage now, which we really didn't have before. Mm -hmm. Second to. Uh, Trustee Hernandez, the complexity at, at Go Live, I think we didn't understand some of the things which were at play. You know, we finally, uh, my manager and I now have uh, almost weekly discussions on the list that didn't advance. And when it first was dropped in his lip, in his lap, and we had talk, I was like, well, what's going on with this? He's like, I have no idea. What's, I, I wasn't trained in how to look at these. I don't know. It took, you know, the first one we found took almost a week of investigation. And what it, we found out was that one of our providers or one of our nurses didn't click the reconcile medications, oh. thing, just a single click. And then, and then it went off into the ether. And then we actually had to do a whole chart review to find out it was a single click, which didn't advance the claim, and it stuck frozen. It took us a week to figure out that it was just a click. Oh. And uh, the, uh, so imagine doing that for 100 charts or 150 charts, mm -hmm. looking for that click and because it doesn't automatically tell you what the problem is. So you have to do a whole entire chart dive to figure that out. And, and that's one of the pros and cons. Epic is, it's, it's a machine, right? So it, it, if, if every single thing isn't clicked, it'll say, won't accept. Yep. And identifying what that single click is, I don't know if we have, if our AI allows us to determine what that is yet, and we haven't trained our staff about all those things. And operationally, uh, remember, we're still working in our mindset under old operations, right? We're just doing the patient care. We're, we really now have to train people who now, now know how to technically enter data into mm -hmm. a computer, which is a different skill set than just being a nurse or being a doctor. And that's, that's our particular challenge here. And then operationally, we, won, we had one who sat in a, a, a one patient's uh, bill which sat in there, and the nurse who had done it, uh, uh, and not on the nurse, but they were an SAN nurse. So that SAN nurse wasn't scheduled to come back for four weeks. Oh so God. we couldn't override that click that they needed to do. So we had to wait till they came back on schedule. And then it's a four-week-old charge, and we know what, that ha what happens to four-week-old charges. Yeah. So there's all kinds. This, the, the, the complexity is extraordinary. So uh, my, I tip my hat to, to, to Kim and, and Mark. And I, I mean, this, this is just it's, it's extraordinarily challenging stuff. But, but we're moving forward, actually, and you, we're seeing those data improve. And the fact that I'm actually talking about charges as, 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 a, as a division chief, which haven't advanced, isn't a discussion I previously had before. Mm -hmm. right. So I think that's sort of amazing. I also just want to point out, sometimes it's amazing what one person's resistance or one person's lack of, you know, understanding about a, a little piece of technology can mean to an entire sequence of things that you need done or a department. Uh, within this last decade, I worked with a major county in California for which the department director decided for the entire department not to adopt email. <laughs> I kid you not, a significant department chief said, no, our department will not have email. I don't feel so bad getting 
There you go. <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is, if, if you don't find out where that you know kink in the system is, and it can be the technology or it can be the person, I mean everything's you know really put at jeopardy because of that. So finding that nurse, you know, doing the education piece, all of that. Oh my God! It's really it, it changes key. the dialogue though, which is which is actually great because it's a great opportunity for culture change. Yeah. Because at our morning endoscopy huddles, we talk about what charges we're outlaying. And we say, don't we want credit for what we've done? Right. And right. that changes the tone. Well, hopefully there's a feedback loop for this sort of thing with um, Epic so that, you know, that seems like not a hard fix to flag things that are missing a click or... Yeah. yeah so Epic does have a, a lot of uh, uh, edits and they're named, but until you're used to it and learn the language, you, you, you don't even have a place to start. So there's the train. Mm -hmm. So, but what I'm really enjoying is my team now refers to edits by number, <laughs> which means they're getting it. They're going, okay, well, that's in that series. That means it has to be something like this that's wrong with it. It may not tell you the exact box, yeah. but it tells you that there's a box over here or something in that part is missing. So, anyway. <laughs> One step at a time, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, it's a uh, tough, tough slog. Yeah. And, and just in regard to my finance report, as far as losing sleep, this this does impact us because we are not hitting the cash collections that we had projected, <coughs> which could mean a couple things. It could mean worse uh, in line with getting uh, being compliant with the NNB. I don't think it would be enough to make us not compliant now that we've got the additional supplemental revenue that was recorded in the financials this time. Um, but it could mean an, an audit adjustment reducing our net patient revenue if we can't show that we are going to get this money in because as the claims age, they become less likely to be paid. Thank you. Any other questions on any of the written reports? I, I had a request. Um, it's on page 104, and that's the um, COO report. Um, so, uh, you know, the patient revenue enhancement strategy update with women's services and things, often we kind of think of it only as labor delivery, but we have, like I see the cervical, the pap smear um, and the screenings and things. So like at some point in time, either at UPSC or full board, can we hear a little bit about like, what are the, I mean, there are women's medical issues that are much bigger than labor delivery, like what are our opportunities out there, what are we doing with some of the other healthy, you know, what is our OP um, does with that and where might there be opportunities if that's as a revenue strategy that's being explored, like where the gaps are, what's happening. So even if it's a written report or something, a little bit for us to understand because I know that sure. the delivery, the new births, just given how flatlined the birth rate has been, it just seems so aggressive and aspirational almost. The labor delivery is like how much we can bump up our volume for that, that I feel like it's mm -hmm. almost like some of the other services that we've got to see how, how those how those can be strengthened. Sure. 
be happy to. Just uh, for for a little bit of context um, uh, to, to to remind you of kind of why, why it looks that way. Um, when we um, you know uh, when we did the contribution margin analysis and the um, suggestion was that our costs far exceeded our revenue in this space and there was opportunity to close that gap um, without curtailing uh, the. Uh, the size or the capacity of the services, so we didn't uh, uh, do any staffing adjustments uh, in, in the budget. Uh, uh, we looked at two different things. One was increasing uh, the deliveries, which we knew was, we, we knew and felt was aggressive, but uh, if you recall, uh, Dr. Smith uh, actually presenting this during the budget cycle, uh, we had some kind of uh, opportunities that we've been exploring during that time that suggested that this was actually a conservative uh, piece if those things had come to fruition. Mm -hmm. uh, the other part, uh, was on the outpatient uh, um, uh, productivity and uh, seeing more patients. And so where uh, ambulatory overall had uh, set uh, about a 3% growth target in terms of uh, volume of um, uh, visits, um, um, uh, women's services actually appended upon that, uh, uh, on top of that, another 5% uh, looking at scheduling capacity and looking at uh, revisions to their, um, their scheduling templates and things like that. And so uh, that work has been underway and it does then get into what are the different types of services that are um, available and present opportunities. And this was a big one that where there was a collaborative effort uh, with the Alliance as a health plan covering a lot of our uh, Medi-Cal uh, 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 insured moms to say, you know, let's uh, uh, lift up cervical cancer awareness and uh, encourage greater screening. It actually tied to, I think, one of our, um, our prime targets or one of the other PPP targets as well. And so it was a collaborative effort with them to do um, uh, active outreach and, and then encourage uh, 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 mothers to, or women, as I say, to come in and, and get those screenings. So uh, the, the reporting in that space has been really tied to what was the budget set out for it and how are we performing against that budget. And as you know, uh, we are flat in one space and I think um, you know, slightly down or, or, or uh, yeah, I think slightly down in the other. Uh, what we have been doing with the department um, under Dr. Jamaluddin's leadership and uh, very actively as we track all of these uh, measures is saying where are the opportunities to look at if we are, well one, I should say, let me say on the proactive side, uh, uh, doing outreach and uh, uh, network development with our partners to say are there ways in which we might actually uh, make this service more attractive and actually uh, um, uh, market to uh, population uh, uh, that we think we're, we're well suited to serve and then two if those efforts aren't uh, materializing are there uh, parts of our services where we may be over resourced and it doesn't look like the trend is going to turn, particularly if the um, delivery volumes uh, keep trending downward. And if we are, say, staffing OBGYN in terms of a delivery service with both a OB and a midwife, and some nights we have two deliveries and some nights we have seven, um, is that too much resource for, you know, or some, it may even be one or zero, and can we calibrate that in a different way? So, so that's the reporting and the discussion that's happening internally. Uh, it does not obviate um, um, the exploration of um, growth opportunities or, or gaps in services that we could meet, uh, actually go hand in hand, uh, but it is trying to maintain the ultimate goal, which is a budget target that you set, and trying to make sure that with, whether it's uh, revenue or expenses uh, and all tied to volume and services were offered that those those three things really calibrate. So we can bring back a more kind of women's services or women's services centric um, uh, report if that's what you're interested in, either QPSC or Finance Committee. Uh, but this, this one is just 
a politician that feels narrow, uh, it was designed to really just stay uh, current on what the, what's in the budget and how it's performing. Then I think then it's okay. It doesn't have to be, but uh, it, it would probably be part of the strategic planning too with service lines and things. So it, if it comes in the frame of that, yeah. then that's fine. And trustee manager, oh, no, no, no. yeah, no, I just, I think um, this is really aligned with something I've been thinking about and I've talked to a few trustees about as well, about what is it that from the committees that we really want to come to the full board and maybe strategy seems to be a theme here. And I think with this, these, this was part of the revenue enhancement strategies that actually we do go into a little bit of detail in finance about but doesn't necessarily always come back to the full board. And so um, I just think it's worthwhile maybe for all of us to be thinking about, you know, what's happening at the committee level that needs to be brought back to full board and thinking maybe uh, maybe we can be a little lighter on updates because those are in the written packets, but be bringing things here that are really around strategy and decision making. And I think this is a really good example, actually. Great. Mm -hmm. Other questions, comments? I just had a quick update. I know I, I spoke to this in the Finance Committee, but wanted to um, just um, kind of update here at the full board is that um, with some of the committee shifts, we sort of ended up with a situation where we had um, too significant of an overlap between our Finance Committee and our Audit Committee. Also, um, our Audit Chair, which is uh, Trustee Peterson, was also on Finance. and so. Um, got some guidance um, from Mike Moy about about some um, legislation that actually applies to nonprofits. So strictly speaking, does not apply to us, but is a best practice that I think we've all sort of agreed we would like to adopt, um, which is that there should not be more than half of the audit committee on finance, and that the chair should not be on finance. So spoken with most of you and gotten some shifts, and so I'm happy to say that that we we've, we've solved that issue. And so now the audit committee is Trustee Banner. Trustee Jensen, who has agreed to be chair, yay, and <laughs> and then Trustee Shiklin and Trustee uh, Peterson. Um, the the trade-off with that is that um, Trustee Jensen will need to step off of QPSC. That leaves only three members, um, which is okay for the bylaws, but not ideal given the importance of QPSC. Um, so it would be lovely to get a volunteer like Trustee DeVries, maybe. Um, <laughs> just as an example. Um, who's interested because we have said that we would like, um, you know, finance and QPSC to have some, some overlap as well. Um, but, but I think the, the other piece is sort of along the lines of what I said previously, which is that really thinking strategically about what it is from QPSC that we need to bring back to the full board. I think um, I'd, I'd want to commend sort of leadership for creating a culture, I think, of transparency around quality indicators and being able to surface events. But what that means is we're surfacing more events and issues that I think um, it's important for us to be thoughtful about what it is that needs to come from QPSC to the full board. And so um, I definitely want to work more with Trustee Bouquet on what it is that should come to the full board and perhaps having a little more time or more um, topics for discussion that come out of QPSC. Um, and you know, if we can get an additional member, that would be great too. <laughs> Um, Rana's going to send out the new, as it stands now, roster to everybody with the subcommittees because there, there's a lot of uh, red, red lines on this <laughs> form, so there's a lot of changes that I won't go through today. That's all I had.
anything else before we adjourn back to closed session? Nope. All right. So, Mike. So, uh, one, if I could just um, prevail upon everyone, uh, Ron, I'll provide you with a copy of Form 700. Um, and give due or greater than due attention to those so that we have them back in a uh, timely manner that would uh, be appreciated. A uh, big push this year to make sure that we get those throughout the organization. So, so uh, at this point, the uh, board is intending to meet in uh, closed session, uh, pursuant to government code section 54957, subsection B. Closed session adjourned at 520, no action taken.